0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey there, artists. I've got some questions for you. What's your brand? How do you use your brand to market your art? What does it mean to show up authentically? Do you reflect your authenticity in the art you make? Guess what? All of these questions are really important and not nearly as uncomfortable to answer as you might expect. Getting in touch with who you are benefits your work, your art, and your bottom line. That's time well spent. So, get ready to take some notes during this deep and thought provoking episode with the artist's concierge, Thea Photiu Howell. Thea Photiu Howell thinks like an artist because she is one. She's thrived at the intersection of art and business for more than 20 years with tenacity, coffee, a gregarious spirit, and a whole lot of networking. Her roles in professional arts development and as an arts educator helps her to serve up powerful tools and practices for her clients. Thea is currently a teaching artist with the North Carolina Museum of Art and a website designer and content writer for creatives in business through her business, The Artist's Concierge. See the show notes for links to deeper insight into the content we cover, including the archetypes. Let me know if you can guess. My archetype. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Thea. Hi, Tamara. Thank you so much for being here. Let's jump right in by talking about the Artist's Concierge, which is your business. What services do you offer?
1: Well, um, it's a variety of um, services for artists and creatives in business that range from content writing and web design all the way to lectures and workshops and other development programs for artists and creatives. Great. And how did you come to this work? Well, I have always been interested, even from a very young age, at business and arts entrepreneurship. And so I've always been In the realm of business and combining that with my work as a fine artist myself. And so both of those arms sort of were of interest to me. I realized that that's really where all my passion lies. It's where all my experiences have been. And I thought, what could I do for other artists to serve them based on what I need as an artist in business? Mm -hmm. So this idea of the artist concierge was born. I couldn't find a name for it. <laughs> I'm not an agent. I'm not really a coach. Um, I'm not a gallerist, but I I am the gateway. I'm the resource. I'm the support for other artists. So it's much like a concierge desk. Today, I would like to dig in a little bit to this
0: idea or these ideas about branding and marketing for artists, which I know a lot of artists struggle with, myself included,
1: how do you define a brand? Oh, a brand is an is an entry point into a conversation. It's the story. Um, it's the word that's the B word that mm. scares a lot of people. They think of big machines and corporations having brands and being very mechanical and plotted about it. And really in the context of artists and creatives, it's the most natural, essential thing about you. And so it's the opposite of being very calculated. It's the thing you can't stop. It's the nature of yourself, your story, the way you speak the way you dress, the things that you gravitate toward. That's your brand. And
0: is there something that is specific to an artist about
1: this branding idea? I mean, what is kind of at the heart of branding for an artist? Oh, something really great. Archetypes. I like to start the conversation about what your brand is by starting with what your archetype is. And so an archetype is a very typical representation of a person um, and all of his or her characteristics. It's the universally understood experience, human experience um, that you see throughout time. And each archetype has its own set of values and meanings and understandings and, and motivations. The word archetype has two parts. It's Greek origin. Arhin means very old. Or original, like in Greek today, spoken today, we would say stinarchin, which is like from the beginning, mm. like way back from the beginning. And typos, which is a pattern, a model, or a type. So putting them together, an archetype is a very recognizable and ancient sort of pattern. And you see archetypes and characters. Throughout movies and novels and pretty much everywhere you you look, you'll see a character whose motivations and inspirations and characteristics you'll recognize over and over and over again. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So there are 12 archetypes. They're known as the – from Carl Jung, they're the Jungian archetypes. And the 12 are divided into, they're divided by groups of four across three different categories. So there's the ego, which those archetypes are the innocent, the orphan and the regular guy, the hero. There's the caregiver. And then there's the soul archetypes, which have the explorer, the rebel, the lover, the creator. And then the self group, which is the jester, the sage, the magician, the ruler. So like if you think of a big corporation, you'll look at Apple as sort of being the the creator, mm. right, um, the one who comes out first with things, the originator, the one who's constantly seeking to make and, and create. And you'll look around now that you kind of understand or you read more about archetypes, you'll look around and you'll um, start seeing other people in these archetypes. You'll start identifying who they are, what's at their essence. But for yourself as an exercise, that's a really important thing to do. So once you identify yourself as one of these 12 archetypes,
0: then you can use that information to help develop your brand.
1: Is that the idea? Yes. So I think um, when I first learned about this, I was at a place where I was creating paintings for the purpose of selling them to a couple different stores that I thought were aligned or would have customers to buy them. I was completely unhappy. Mm -hmm. I was not making the art that was telling my story. I was not uh, making art that had subject matter that was really even of interest to me. And I was also trying to figure out in my social media communication how much of myself to spill and what parts were important. And when I first was introduced to this idea of telling your story, finding your brand, crafting um, who you are using first identifying with your archetype. When I looked at that spectrum of the 12 archetypes, the caregiver nurturer archetype just immediately resonated. And then you can also have a, a sub archetype, but there is a leading archetype. So that one's mine. But my sub archetype is the jester, mm. always has been. So when I first identified with those those two, I felt like someone just gave me permission to be me. That all of a sudden, I could be relatable if I first related to myself. And if I first understood that this is me, you can't stop a train, mm-hmm. this is my nature, I'm not going to be happy unless I use the language that I that I'm born to use. I express myself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, creatively in the context of what I was meant to be, what I'm born to be. It had an effect on my artwork. I was not silencing these sort of strange stories of, of being a Greek American and my cultural identity and the things that were important to me, the subject matter that I would choose to draw or paint. I was not silencing that anymore. I was telling stories on on social media about my family and my experiences because the, that was part of, of healing and relating to others and even being the jester and being funny about it um, and telling funny stories. And I thought, if the world does not care to hear this, that's okay. Mm. That's okay. I have to hear it. I have to say it. And I'm not going to craft anything for my audience. I'm going to craft for me. And then an audience will find it. An important way of thinking for many artists is that they feel like they are making and creating for an audience. It's almost impossible, I think, to realize who your audience is, uh, because people will gravitate to things that end in, in ways that you never could expect. So it's always most important to be authentic and treat yourself with the dignity and respect that you deserve by not silencing the things that matter to you mm. and the way that you want to um, to relate and express yourself.
0: So we're going to dig more into this idea of authenticity in just a moment, but I want to circle back just very briefly to the archetype idea because what it sounds like you're saying is that if you're an artist, you don't have to be the creator archetype and I and I wonder if some people resist that idea when they realize that oh I don't that's not my archetype can I still be an artist what are your
1: thoughts about that absolutely so you are not trying this is not about labeling your profession Uh, this is not about labeling yourself based on the way you dress (laughs) Or the way you look, or the places that you live, or the experiences that you have. This is something far more egocentric and really at the heart of your spirit. So you could be, um, and we we know who this is, we you could be the the lover and be an illusionist, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you could have that sort of charismatic presence about you and be an illusionist. And we know there's there's a famous one who fits that. Mm -hmm. You could be a chef who's a rebel, right? Yes, we definitely know those. We know those. (laughs) (laughs) And so the thing that is really interesting is that if you read the 12 archetypes and you read the The meanings and the motivations that are sort of broadly described within each one, you may all of a sudden really gravitate toward one or two. Um, You may not. You may all of a sudden say, wow, I don't know who or what I am. And when that happens, I would really suggest that you Think about e- even looking outside of those 12 archetypes and looking at like your favorite characters, right? And sometimes it's not the things that are most like us that we gravitate towards. This can be things that are very opposite from mm-hmm. us, but find out what your motivations are and why. Why do you like this certain thing? What is it about you that senses that that's important? And so you you will eventually and probably quickly start to find that when you look outside to other old type characters that you know. Mm-hmm. What's
0: so interesting to me about this is that at first blush it feels very limiting to mm-hmm. box ourselves into yeah. one of 12 types. I mean, my initial response is, well, I don't I don't fit in a box, you know. Yeah. I'm myself and but for me actually it's a relief yeah. to recognize myself yeah. and say like, "Oh, that is me. That's why I feel" You know, motivated to do things in this way or that's why I feel like I want to make this time this type of work that's unlike other people's work and I mean my inclination is to try and bend myself to be a version of an artist that I have in my mind and there's such a relief that comes when I don't feel like I have to make myself into somebody else i just have right. to go deeper into who i am
1: absolutely absolutely so at the core of everyone is is this set of beliefs and these really aren't beliefs so for example the caregiver is not defined as a good one or a bad one. It's the caregiver. Mm. So not one who has it all nailed down perfectly and not one who's like works by happenstance and is is, is messy and chaotic. So it's not that you have to find, it's different than finding how it's done. Mm. It's about what it is, not how it expresses itself that's something that you then add to it. And that's what makes every single person who's the explorer different from one another, right? Some explorers have a... Belief in, in, in nature and uh, are more spiritual about their exploration while others are more literal and physical about their exploration. So no one's saying these, these archetypes dictate how you do it. That's all you. And that's where the beauty of it. And that's where all these combinations come in. So I'm the caregiver who's the big joker, right? I'm also the jester. So that means I have a tendency to express that. In, in humorous ways. So all of this circles
0: around this idea of authenticity, which yeah. I know is very important to you. We've talked about it a little bit, but could you define what
1: authenticity even means? Yeah. I want to start sort of with Something that happened to me when I was a kid and and realizing what it meant to be sort of true to yourself, my uh, originally from up north and my aunt was a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, had traveled the world and was always just full of this pep and vinegar about life and had all these wonderful quotes. And, you know, 11 or 12 year old kid (laughs) is listening to all this all the time, right? Like reciting things that other colonels had said. And like, yeah, just really, um, very academic in her, in her stance. And one day I was leaving her house and she handed me this plastic bag a clear plastic bag with a piece of parsley she had just cut from her garden that she wanted me to chew on on the, in the car on the way home because it freshens your breath and it's good for you. <laughs> and inside she had also taken a, a piece of cardstock from her pantyhose packaging and she wrote the in blue ballpoint pen, I can still see it. She wrote the words, Know Thyself-Socrates. And handed it to me and said, This is one of the most important things you could ever know. And I thought, wow. Like, I remember as a kid not going, not, not um, repelling from that in any way. I sucked it right in immediately. There was something about me that craved that, that thought that that was so cool that something's, I didn't really come to understand what it was then. I thought I knew. I know more now as I have some application in life to to relate to, but I thought that is so cool that you could say something so profound in two words, mm. right? And so that was sort of my first understanding that I had this principle to live with, um, but since then... You know, I've come to understand authenticity is, is not false or imitation. It's being true to one's own personality and identity. It's singular. No one can make your authenticity for you. No one can make you authentic. It is very sincere. And I look at the word sincere having two um, Latin root origins. Sin means without and ser is perfection. Mm. And so, you know, the old masters who created statues, if a statue had a chisel mark or had like something damaged, it was said to be a sincere statue, meaning you could still see that it wasn't created by any mold. It was, it had the hand of the artist. It was without perfection. And authenticity to me is 110% without perfection. And if it, You can craft a little bit of, you know, not looking like an idiot or a fool (laughs) or a fool. I mean, you have license to like protect yourself. Uh, You don't have to share all of your flaws. But showing that you are a sincere, authentic, singular, individual, righteous in your own sense And that is really at the heart of authenticity. I just recently wrote some declarations of authenticity that I think kind of speak to this. And a couple of them I I mentioned already. The expressions may change with authenticity, but authenticity itself does not. Mm. So as you grow and develop, the way in which you express your authenticity can change. It's not that anyone is saying who you are today. Has to be who you are when you die right. um, because you're being authentic. You will follow different behaviors through life as you grow and develop and and weaken, even. And so that's important to know that it is a fluid, but it also is a constant. Right. It's always there, never leaves, but it's a little bit fluid. Um, it's yours completely to create. And I tell artists that. I said something bold the other day, I think. I was really speaking to myself, too, <laughs> the same time. As we often are, yeah. right? <laughs> But I was saying, I give you permission to create what you need to create. And I said it three times in a row, and the room was quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they looked at me, and it was like this breath of, like, release And tension just lifting away because so often people are so unsure, artists are so unsure about, will they like it? Will they love it? Will they buy it? Rather than asking yourself first, do you love it? Do you like it? Do you buy it? Do you attach to it? And that's where it starts. Mm, I have two questions. Yeah.
0: One is, how do we find this? It feels like a mythic beast almost. It's like <laughs> my authentic artistic self, you know, she's yeah. in there somewhere. How do you how do you identify that or define that for yourself? And then the second part of that question is is there a divide between our authentic artist self and our personal self that we want to keep Private. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think there's a resistance to being so authentic that the whole world knows everything about you, like feeling compelled to almost overshare because you want to show up as your 100% true self. So what are your thoughts about both of those pieces?
1: The first part, again, being. Being how do we find this? How do you find it? Mm -hmm. So I like to answer that (laughs) by asking yourself, what are you cutting out? Mm -hmm. It's, it's often if you if you don't have this immediate sense and understanding already right now today, then you can exercise this and workshop it by asking, where have you been the least comfortable? And why were you the least comfortable? What was it that you were either pulling back, not allowed to do, not allowed to say? And that, once you ask yourself, what was that thing? That may be the authentic part of yourself that you weren't allowed to do. And so if you can kind of articulate what you, what you have been cutting out, that's the thing that you should be – that should be in and only in. Right.
0: It does make sense because – yeah. and I also think that's easier, easier for us to identify the – the pain points, basically, when we feel like we couldn't show up fully, those come to mind for me, at least, um, immediately. And the other piece where I'm actually in the zone, I'm, you know, firing on all cylinders, when I actually am showing up as my authentic self, it feels so natural that sometimes it's not even notable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. It's the nature of things, which could also be why it's hard to find out what is your, you know, what what is authentic about me. Um, it's like saying, how does your sweater that you wear every day feel? Right. It's very hard to explain because it becomes, it feels like second skin. Right. And I think having somebody like you or a good
0: friend or mentor or someone to help put the finger on that can also be really helpful In a former life of mine, I was actually a career counselor, and I remember I was working with undergraduates at liberal arts schools, and they would come in, and I would read their resume, and they would say, well, you know, I really like math, but I'm not really good at it, and, you know, I I, don't—there's nothing really special about about what I do. And I said, you know, look at your resume. I can tell you, as a person who is not good at math— that you're really good at math. Like, you've taken mm-hmm. all of these classes, these really mm-hmm. advanced classes. You've done internships. Like, that's your thing. It's not my thing. As someone who who can see it from the outside, you really need to lean into this because it seems so natural. It's sort of like, gosh, everyone must be able to do this. Everyone sees the world in this way. Everyone has these skills. It's not special. And as an outside person, I was actually saying, yes, mm-hmm. it is special. Mm-hmm. And this is what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. And that was always a really fun and, and funny moment yeah. to see the person go, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. really, my Meet friend. Meet yourself. <laughs> yeah, Hello,
1: <laughs> this is you. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what about this other piece, um, the the hesitation to overshare, let's say, on social media? Yeah.
1: I find it a lot with parenthood. Yes, yes. Uh, there's this need to protect our, our young and our innocent from the context of written, you know, written text about, about them, um, on whether it's social media or a blog or even in conversation or even images of them that you may want, feel compelled to post, but then you pull back a little. Um, there's some people that are parents that completely shield the world from that side of them. They don't acknowledge it in business settings. I come to find out Later, their parents, and then you're like, Whoa, really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Never said a single word about your child. And that's okay. But it, I don't have the permission to say it's not okay if you're stopping it for reasons that you're afraid of feeling vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Those, I think, if you apply your own logic, And it makes sense, and it's a healthy logic as to why you may or may not shield that part of your life or any part of your life from another person, that if it's a healthy logic and you really are doing it for reasons that seem very settling for you, then that's you and no one can tell you that's right or wrong to do. But I think if you're worried about being vulnerable or being seen as weak or being seen as um, distracted even from whatever this other part of you is that you're shielding, I would challenge you to flip the mindset and understand that if that is part of your authentic self, that is part of your archetype, and it is just another way for you to express yourself, you're really not going to be happy You're going to be turning up the volume on the tension between you trying to constantly craft not to say those things. Mm. And then you're going to be turning down the volume on really true expression. So if you find, like, you go to reach for your phone to post on Facebook, and you're finding ways to come up with other words to replace the things you really want to say and other pictures are to replace the pictures you really want to post, then I think you you have to Mm reevaluate. Then I think you're trying to stop the river, right? And you can't stop the river. But if you really feel like It's unimportant. It is you can exist without sharing these other aspects or facets of your life. That's okay, As long as you don't feel turmoil in doing so. Before we got on mic here,
0: you used a phrase that I really like called uh, curating an experience Mm -hmm. for your audience. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about that a little bit?
1: So there has to be, even in authenticity, there has to be a level of clarity, right? I am not in conversation constantly with my audience where I could just jump on social media and quickly craft something and expect them to jump in on a conversation or a a point of understanding that's already been going on without them so i still have to craft for clarity mm. i still have to cl- craft with intention of and i believe even though you're authentic and you're in touch with everything that even you know speaking to an audience you still you still have to do a little bit of wordsmithing and a little bit of intention seeking. Like, why why am I actually writing this post? <laughs> Is it really just for me? Because it feels great for me to just tell you like all these things that I did today. Or am I telling you for a, a reason, right? And yeah, that's, that's the crafting part. Whether I do it a lot or not, I probably do craft things more than I think I do, but I also do let things come naturally. So it sounds like we start with
0: ourselves and really identifying and defining why we're making what we're making, what we really want to make, how we want to make it. We start there, get really comfortable with owning that. And that's when the other people kind of come into the picture, and that's when we can converse with our audience. So when we're talking about crafting a post on social media, we're starting with ourselves, but we're actually speaking to mm-hmm. other people. So it's not just like me me me, right. I'm being authentic. This is right. me, you know. So that's when we start engaging with the people who want what we are yes. offering,
1: right? And something really really important about that is um there's two things really important about engaging with your audience. As artists, you, you bring with you artists in business and creatives in business bring with them their need to everything that they do. They bring their need for supporting themselves financially and emotionally through their business. I have come to realize that someone purchasing your art is not the highest form of flattery. Hmm. Being engaged with you being respected, taking the time to even read what you write, those are the highest forms of flattery for me. Purchasing your art is a wonderful experience, right? No one would say, oh, gosh, that feels terrible. (laughs) But it really, when you get into the mindset that that is not the highest form of flattery, Mm -hmm. right? That is a form of praise through commerce, (laughs) <laughs> but it is not flattery. It is not an indication of whether they truly love and admire you because you may have a follower who loves and admires you but is not purchasing your art. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many other ways of engagement to um, support you and, and what you do. I'm doing a, a talk in January of this year at Anchor Light Studios on authenticity through the context of building revenue streams and valuing, articulating value in your art business. And this idea of authenticity comes through because if you're not, you have to weed out all those other things that you shouldn't be making. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it becomes clear that one thing, two things, three things is okay as long as I can really latch on to them. I can write about them. I feel great to stand in front of them and talk about them. I feel confident in these products and offerings and services rather than this group of like 30 things that were just like a flush out, Mm -hmm. right? And I feel burdened and cumbersome with and they're not selling and they cost me money and I'm tied up in them. Um, if they're not part of your authentic self, what you were destined to make or should be making can be very cumbersome. It can be a burden. It can also be very confusing to your audience. So if one hand you're, you know, very, you get to the point where you're really in touch with your archetype and your, your, your brand is strong and your conversations are tight and aligned with you really well. And then you have all this for lack of a better word, all this mess and noise happening around you and like all your products and offerings and you're scrambling and you're reaching and you're grabbing for things because you think more is better and more is like dynamic expression of yourself. It's not. Sometimes one or two things is enough to be like a really, really great example of of you and enough for your audience to, to grab onto that. Because those things are so potent for you that
0: you can then build out essentially marketing campaigns around those things. I
1: could not talk about – I can talk about today my art lines up with my artist statement far better than when I was making paintings of circus clowns and animals to sell because I knew that that was like this marketable thing. And it didn't align with my artist statement. I couldn't write an artist statement for that <laughs> spew is a nice word. I couldn't for that, like, spew of art mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was making. But I can for this. Mm-hmm. I can today. I can e- more easily stand in front of my work and say, that's me on the wall. <laughs> so can we use you as
0: an example a little bit oh, here? sure. <laughs> because I would really like to hear, you've given us a few crumbs of this, where you started to where you are right now, but can you dig in a little bit to you know where you found yourself with this uh, variety of offerings <laughs> that felt unaligned with who you are, who you were, yeah. and then um, or who you are and and the journey that you went on to get where you are now, and then I would like to talk about these things like artist statements and other mm-hmm. um, other content
1: that we could use as artists to really talk about sure. ourselves when I didn't have to sell my work. Early on in my career, in art school, I made what I was supposed to make. Mm. I made what I aligned with. I didn't have any other conversations clouding my judgment, clouding my emotions. It was... Flush out all these things that matter to you. All these things that you're studying and feeling. Flush them out in your drawings and your paintings. Just get it out there. And in fact, authenticity was at its high. Mm-hmm. It was the, and, and it was at its high among everyone, um, who I shared studios with all, you know, all of my, my colleagues in school. What happened after graduating? you still feel that you still feel that empowerment. And then I think what happened was shortly after when bills came into play and influencers sort of surround you and look at your work and you start asking for different kinds of feedback from people who are not artists themselves. Mm-hmm. People who are invested And rightfully so, and uh, beautifully in helping you make a living as an artist, but they lack that understanding of what matters to you. So I let these, and I've seen it with others too, but for myself, I can really speak authentically about this. It happened to me so many times where I would take a person's piece of advice like, ooh, I saw this artist making X, Y, and Z, and you should totally Mm -hmm. make that. And you could paint and draw just like they did. And they're making X number of dollars a week. And that's totally what you need. So boom, I just hooked you up. I just did a service for you. When in fact, what it did was it legitimized that I could do it. It made me feel empowered to do it. And I also had this need over here, which was I had to pay my bills. So I did it. And then you get comfortable in doing it. Then you're in like this rat race of, and I totally lost touch with, I lost touch with my um, my writing. I moved to North Carolina to be, um, continue my, my work as a poet and to go into an MFA program. Lost touch with that. I started making all kinds of other work. I started convincing myself that, I was this, and then so that I could share that with other people. Mm -hmm. And I lost this whole body of work that meant something to me. And when I discovered that archetype was so important, I heard it in the context of an artist explaining they were in a near-death experience, and they were not living in a career that meant anything to them. They were drowning in it. And so this near-death experience, when they came out of it on the other end, they had to really just shed all of that because life was so precious. So whatever it is that's your driving force, whether it's a fear of death (laughs) (laughs) or a fear of losing yourself. Whatever it may be, there is, there really should be something that you're fearful of yeah. because we make great decisions when we're scared of things, Very motivating, (laughs) yeah. It is motivating. So from that point forward, again, that was two, three years ago, like, this is my artist statement. And oh, look, check that out. It looks so much like my artist statement from college. What do you know? And it has developed, it's matured. It will change. Artist statements do. They change as your influences and your, your, your being changes. Uh, not too much, though. And so now it's a comfort. Mm-hmm.
0: As I mentioned, I do want to talk about the artist statement because I think it's really helpful and important for artists to have one. But I have a question about what happens when you get really clear about – the why and the how and the what and you feel really comfortable with that and you put it out there and there's no response. So, yeah, you know, you you put the Instagram yeah. post up or or even you, yeah. you know, you put all your work out there and nobody buys it and then you feel or I would feel in that case right like embarrassed and ashamed yeah. and personally rejected. It's like this is me and my art and no mm-hmm. one gives
1: a crap. I have also learned that we think when something is good <laughs> and we are being true that we may exist for everyone, and we don't. The same way purchasing your work of art is not the highest form of flattery that can happen to you as an artist in business, reaching everyone is not, mm. is not practical either. You don't exist to serve everyone. And we often feel like, but art is so valued in the world. And if they're valuing art, in the truest sense, they're going to patronize everyone, right, right? Right. They'll
0: like mine. <laughs> they're right? like mine.
1: They'll, they'll come to my studio booth that's next door to that person's studio booth, and we're all going to share in the well. Right. And it doesn't happen that way. No, you don't. Love isn't spread evenly across the world in any other facets. It sure as hell isn't spread evenly in the art world, and. It is really hard. Um, I think some some marketeers out there might say, "Thea, you're totally wrong," but in other sectors of the industry, the machine, right, the business machine, it works really, really hard to calculate a demographic and the behaviors of that demographic, and then it adjusts itself to be that to 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 reach that calculation. Mm-hmm. And art is such a, it's a both a logical thing. You have an empty space on a wall. You have an empty pedestal in your house. You go by art because logically you got to fill that space. You have to, there's a Mm, void, mm -hmm. right? A physical void. Emotionally, there's a, there's a void. Mm -hmm. And so art also fills a void emotionally. And so it can be, it can be and do both. But I believe it is a pointless, pointless effort to try to figure out who your demographic is. I have heard people say some really remarkable things that prove this to me, that, that it's not true that artists need to figure out who their demographic is. They have been pleasantly and shockingly <laughs> surprised that You know, a 17-year-old boy was like their biggest promoter and had nothing to do with their business. But yet he was like an aficionado of their industry and went out and like just amazingly was their hugest promoter. Hmm. He didn't have the funds to buy what this industry was selling. He was not even close to being where most of their customers and clients are in life. But he just loved it. And so, in the scheme of like a marketing process, if you will, where someone becomes a, a viewer first, and then they become a client or a customer, and then they you hope at the end they will become a promoter. This this kid he skipped just to the end. Right, right. He was just promoter mm-hmm. all the way. So. There's logic in, in art marketing. There's, but you've got to leave this huge amount of space for happenstance mm. that because we're dealing with emotions, you never know if the person who can't afford your work ends up being the one who buys it. Right. Cause they're making this emotional purchase that seems illogical to any kind of demographic you might study about them. They just don't fit, but they buy your work. And so here's how what I could say in a nutshell about this. Your audience is everyone. Your patrons are not. Okay. Your, say od- that again. your audience is everyone, right? Everyone can view is there's potential for anyone and everyone to view your work, but your engagement is a select view. Your clients, maybe even a smaller group within mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Your customers, your your purchasers, maybe even smaller than your engagement, right? But but your work can and should be you should be you should be allowing it to be viewed, or considering it that it may be viewed by a huge variety of demographic. So I think what you're
0: saying. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is that you keep the invitation open. You keep mm-hmm. the door open for anyone to walk in, right? Right. But you are then
1: dealing in a different way with the people who actually do yeah. come in. absolutely. Well, um, I yeah, maybe not dealing with, but just consider that engagement is not going to be everyone, but viewership is a much larger mm right? Much, possibility, much, much larger potential. Uh-huh. And that's also freeing because if that's true and you don't have a demographic that you're making art for, that is awesome mm. because that allows you to be authentic in it. You are not making you're So even if, let's say, you're a toy maker, okay? And you create original designs and you do have a certain person you think may and should be buying your handmade toys that's great and you can keep your mind on that and it can inform you on understanding how that may that toy may be used and what they like about it and different facets of that relationship between that potential customer or that that age that demographic even that gender to your art But at the heart of it, you still have to, for some reason, authentically love and want to make that toy. Mm -hmm. And it always, always, always has to come at the end of the day. It always should be, I'm still making that toy because I love it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use informed. I'm going to have some informed decision making because of my audience, but at the heart, it's still the nature of who I am. I'm still not veering off from making what I want to make, applying what I think is me, and applying my own style and my own characteristics to it. It's perfectly fine to understand you You may have an audience, but, again, don't craft for something because you'll be wrong. Mm, I see. Okay. <laughs> okay. That brings us to…
0: The artist statement. What is this? Yeah. Why do we need it? How do we make it? Can you help us take sure. a couple steps in that direction?
1: Sure. At the heart of the artist statement, it really the, there's some clarity to put to it. It's three. It's three parts. It's what you make, how you make it, and why you make it. So the what is literally describing the product without making assumptions that someone already understands it you start literally in clearest terms explain you know it's a it's a sculpture of a soda can right don't leave chance to under for the public to sort of fabricate what they think it is right, right? right. don't make them guess <laughs> just literally be as clear as possible say it's this right this is what it is How you make it can include your process, your materials, your physical actions that prepare you in any form for making it. And then the why you make it, that is your intention. Those are your muses, Mm. your abilities, your interests, your Personality, all of those non tangible resources that you bring to making that product. And that is really important. It's important to a lot of people. People think, well, I'm going off topic a little bit, but a lot of people think that sharing that part of their inspiration through the context of like experiences when they were a child, that they're irrelevant to today. They absolutely are not there. It's your life is a continuum and you can circle back to things that happened to you historically with as much relevance or even more relevance today. And so the life of the artist, this is why people buy paintings from you and not from home goods. You Mm -hmm. don't get a story Mm -hmm. from home goods. So. All of those things that make you you, they're purchasing a piece of you, a piece of your work, a piece of your heart, your mind, the things that they did, that the things that you did that they can never fathom. Those are all really important. In an artist's statement, you can turn the volume up on the what or the why or the how or any combination of those as it relates to your art. So if you're more of a process-driven artist and that is really unique to you, it's the place where your heart lives. The, you could care less about the materials you, you use but um, and your inspiration is like you can't articulate it. But your process is spot on and it's attention-grabbing to you first. Then you're gonna turn the volume up. you're gonna in, you're gonna emphasize in your artist statement and maybe your whole artist statement is mostly about your process. Mm-hmm. And so it can be any combination. For me, my artist statement is my why. Um, I do explain a little bit about what I make, but I don't go into any more detail than, paintings and drawings because Mm -hmm. that's not important for me to say that I use black watercolor. It's not important for me to talk to you about my process. It's pretty damn boring. (laughs) Um, It's more important for me to tell you where these subjects come from and what I'm thinking about and what I'm compelled to do on a daily basis. It's it's really my art is a complete extension of my life and my experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm a storyteller in my art. So if I talked more about process or the actual product, I'd lose you. You wouldn't get that. Um, Yeah. So that's an artist statement. It seems like these artist statements are
0: important to give our audience context to to orient them. But also, I want to emphasize this, that people want to care about you. So give them the information that they need To go on that journey of caring about you, engaging with you,
1: feeling with you in a way that they wouldn't with the home goods. Absolutely. And guess what? Here's something really profound about that, Tamara, is people do not have to find themselves in you to like you and want to be aligned with you. You could be the complete opposite of them and their interest in every aspect and they want to they want to be next to you as close as they can to you. They want to understand you and and relate to you and know you and it feels good to know something that's different than yes, you. Yes, yes. That's a great point. And and I use the example of like I'm the biggest chicken shit. <laughs> I am I am the person who runs out of the room when they see, you know, like anything spooky. I'm the one who runs to the door. I have a very good flight response. So, why do I have this awesome collection of horror movies? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. There is something that is feeding me, right, that is of interest to me. So, that couldn't be, <laughs> maybe I see myself in the character that's fleeing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But just keep always in mind that your audience does not have to be you. Right. In fact, it's really a high form of flattery when you know that they're not. Right. Yes.
0: This is a really rich topic. We're going to have to come back to this in another way. Um, We like the macaw. Oh, well, but I just, (laughs) you know, I'm not looking for somebody who is a carbon copy of me because I'm hanging out with myself all the time. Like, I want somebody who makes me feel excited, who is some other version, almost fantasy version of me. And I'm totally, I want to jump into that and get a piece of that and feel a little bit of that spark. And so if you give me the opportunity to do that by telling me about who you are, then I will be there for that 100%. You don't need to try to be me to get me. (laughs) Be you and I will come to you, you right, know? Right, So, yeah, that's really great. We are wrapping up here on our time. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that
1: we didn't get a chance to touch on? Sure. So there are some, I, I was doing a, some research about authenticity um, and th- there, there are some, you can read more about this online, but there are like seven qualities that people possess when they are, um, really being very authentic. authentic people possess these mm. seven qualities, right? And um, psychoanalysts will say that, um, that this is that results, the authenticity actually results in like a psychological maturity. Mm. And it's really hilarious to <laughs> apply that to myself. But um, I have found that like being authentic allows me to um, course correct, I feel more comfortable. Um, I feel more respectful of others because I don't compete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't judge because I don't want to be judged and I don't want to compete. Um, and I don't want them to compete with me. So there, there are all these wonderful authenticities like, not just this concept, it's this really wonderful practice. Mm-hmm. It results in a great practice of being um, developed as a human being. And if you're developed as a human being, chances are your business is going to be pretty sound. So I just want to relate that this is not just like all this theoretical crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is real stuff. This develops you into a you know maturity. and And don't be don't be afraid of things. You know, one of the reasons why um, people may be resistant to this is because of that vulnerability factor. But I would love for people to, to listen to um, one of the great cycle um, analysis thinkers of our time, Brene Brown. Yes. Yes. And Brene talks about shame versus guilt. And, sh- you know, sh- shame is something that you, that, we we have right because of something we are Mm. but guilt is something you feel because of something you've done (laughs) so just remind yourself that as you're trying to be authentic that you're not um accusing yourself of being guilty of something Mm. right or shaming yourself for being something because you will be respected you will be valued more so when you are authentic that's That's the irony yeah wonderful
0: Thank you so much. I will put lots of links and goodies in the show notes so that people can reach out to you and dig a little deeper into some of the things we talked about. Awesome. But thank you so much for today. Thanks for having me. Hey, friends. I want to tell you about Shadowbox Studio, where this episode was recorded. Shadowbox Studio is Durham's flexible, rentable art and activity space. Shadowbox is perfect for video and photo shoots, recording podcasts like this one and holding movie screenings classes spy club meetings or whatever else you can dream up find out more at shadowboxstudio.org and here's a secret if you tell them you heard it on artist soapbox you'll get a 25 five dollar discount on your first rental isn't that awesome